Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today's guest is Christian Millar, CEO of Equinox Gold, a Canadian gold producer operating in Americas with six producing gold mines and four growth projects. So I think they're pretty busy at the moment. Um, Christian is, uh, has a commerce and accounting background, and I'm really keen to hear the story of Equinox Gold and how it developed and become a major player in the gold market. Um, so I'd like to welcome Christian. How are you doing, Christian? Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Uh, first time, exciting to be here. Yeah, and I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to um, do this podcast and give us uh, a background of, obviously, Equinox. So how we start these podcasts off, I wondered if you can just give the audience a brief or detailed background of, of yourself when you graduated or when you left school and how your career has developed to where you are today. Yeah, I have to admit, when I, when I was in school or left school, I would never imagine I am where I am today. <laughs> um, boy, I graduated here in Vancouver. I got a business degree, I started in sciences, and I, I thought it would be a good way to a job in a sense, and I ended up uh, getting my chartered accounting designation, so I thought it would give me lots of flexibility, and boy, it has. Um, I ended up going to Europe. I worked in Switzerland for a couple of years at uh, PwC, and then I moved to London. I was an investment banker there for about seven years at BNP Paribas, and a lot of exposure to different companies and sectors. And um, when we had our first child, we moved back to Vancouver and sort of said, what are we going to do with our lives? It was kind of like that break point. And Vancouver's not a big banking and financial center like uh, London. So I looked around and there's a few sectors here, a lot of entrepreneurs, a bit of biotech, and then mining is pretty much a dominant sector here in Vancouver, although mm. the last eight years have been great. Um, and I ended up joining Newgold right at the time of the three-way merger. And I was in their office helping them get through integration of a, creating a call it a mid-tier gold mining company in 2008 when copper price, remember, was four bucks. I can't remember where gold was at the time, but things were looking really good and rosy. And then within six months of joining, I remember copper fell to a dollar thirty, gold fell off a cliff, everything was sold. And I was like, wow, what if I got myself into the volatility? What what am I doing in mining for? (laughs) Boy, um, but I loved what we were doing because... In a sense, you're, you're building companies, you're financing them, you're putting people together, you're different cultures and regions and lots of skill bases of people around the world. And um, we built New Gold to sort of a, I think it was a $4 billion company. Uh, it sort of lost its way. I mean, I left before it, it really did, but I enjoyed that process. And I actually got a call one day from Neil Woodyear and ultimately Frank Justra, who were behind Endeavor Financial at the time, and they were deciding that after the financial crisis, they should buy gold mines, and so they looked for a gold mine or a company to buy, and it happened to be half of a mine in Burkina Faso. I don't think I'd ever heard of Burkina Faso at the time, <laughs> to be honest. And Ouagadougou being the capital was very interesting. Um, I thought, you know what? Um, Neil was basing the company in Monaco. He was building a West African platform of gold miners. And I joined them and never looked back. We, we really, um, we had a great time just pulling companies together, refinancing them, sort of making them better, finding great people. 
And we created a five mine company that ultimately, uh, you know, now is a Endeavor Mining, which is a mm. multi-asset gold producer in West Africa doing fantastically well. And really the, the seeds and the germination of that was during the time that I was there as, as Neil's right hand. And um, I got another call when I was there saying, hey, do you want to move back to Vancouver and, uh, you know, fix a mine that's in Burkina Faso, interestingly. It was True Gold at the time and Mark O'Day had it. And I thought Mark and, and Nolan Watson and some of these good names in our gold mining sector were behind it. I thought, you know what? I can solve the, the political issues. There had been an attack on site by the local community and the, the shake was against it and all these things. And I thought, you know what? If it's a sound mine, you can build relationships with people, being a government, local communities and, and workers, et cetera, and actually solve those problems. And you can create great value because the stock had been hit very hard. So I joined. I moved to Burkina Faso for the first three months and said, I'm not coming home until we solve this. And, you know, the uh, interim president at the time during the coup said, look, I'll get you back up and in, in construction by May 15th before the rains come. Cause that's critical in West Africa. You capture the rains and yeah. you're down. And um, we were literally about two weeks late. We got up and, and we got that mine into production and ended up selling it to Endeavor Mining. I hope we'd build a mining company around it, but the offer came in and it was just too good. And we ended up selling it. So myself and the whole team are looking for the next opportunity. And uh, we got in touch with a group called Pacific Road Private Equity here in Vancouver. They're Australian-based, but they had a Vancouver office. They own the Luna Gold, uh, 50% of the Luna Gold Company, which is a past-producing mine in Brazil. It needed fixing, it needed money, it needed people, it needed a turnaround. Uh, we jumped into that. I put in, I think, a million dollars. The rest of the team put another million and a half in. And we said, all right, let's go. There's three million in the bank. We'll get going on this. And um, we think in 2016 it was, we can raise the money and fix it. That was the original point when myself and the team entered and look where we are today. I kind of go six mines, four projects. And the great thing was in late 2017, uh, Richard Wark and Ross Beatty got involved. We did a three-way merger that brought in, um, well, Ross is chairman, his money, his influence, his support. And Richard Wark brought in his shareholding as well as the Castle Mountain Mine in California. So we really created the, the genesis of Equinox Gold at the time. And, Ross had created his first company called Equinox Resources. I think it was in the 80s, and he'd sold that successfully. And he said, look, I'm 60, whatever, six, and this is the bookend of my career. Let's call it Equinox Gold. And, and uh, I thought it was quite a privilege to work with a guy that, you know, was kind of a mentor and I looked up to uh, in my career. I'm probably 20 years or so younger than him. Um, and the team is fairly young here, and we have a real ambition of creating something that's long-lasting. Um, similar to what Endeavor Mining is becoming now, similar to what Ross created with Pan Am Silver, it's their multi-asset platform in the Americas that it will see through multi-decades of, of mining. And, mm. uh, you know, in a sense, it leaves a nice legacy for him. He's an environmentalist by heart, and, and uh, he has three core holdings, which are Pan Am Silver, Equinox Gold, and a clean energy company called Interjex. And for me, this is everything, in a sense. This is my career, my job, my, my investment, in a sense, is mostly in this company. And and we're having a great fun time creating that culture of ownership and investment. And the whole team, as well as the board, are kind of invested both emotionally but also financially. And I've really enjoyed kind of that progression through my career working with, you know, Randolph and Ian Telfer, Pierre Lasson in the early days of New Gold, then on to Neil Woodger, Frank Juster, now Richard Wark and Ross Beatty and Luke Slendine's even got some influence in what we do. And in a sense, being able to bring some of that culture that I, I wanted to do a company, I learned lots of good things and some bad things about the history that I've had with people and cultures. And, um, I think we're building like a young, long-term team that, that I'm really excited about. And um, 
you know, I think the market started to reward that plus the gold price is up. So that doesn't hurt. Yeah. And we've got a platform now, which is a bit unique because the last eight years, no one's been investing in our sector in gold. And you've seen a lot of companies sell assets, downsize, repay debt. Well, we've been doing the exact opposite. We've been actually accessing capital through Ross and Richard and the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Abu Dhabi and buying assets when gold was $1,100, $1,200 an ounce, then $1,300 an ounce. And putting that together, that platform that's very leverageable to gold. And most of the time you see mining companies quite often invest at the top of the site, gold and capital's coming into the sector. But we wanted to do it the other way around and actually invest when assets are fairly cheap. And I think so far it's been pretty successful. That's where you make the money. That's exactly right. <laughs> Don't invest at the top. And, and you see also the top when big companies start investing and buying assets for cash and using a lot of debt and leverage to pay for it. That's bad news. Yeah. yeah. Um, or if we did the opposite. We used a bit of leverage at the bottom and the access to a bit of equity capital we had through our connections. And, and now we have a strong, more institutional investor base and, and the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Abu Dhabi and Ross have put hundreds of millions in. And um, it's an exciting place to be. And, and I never would have predicted gold would hit all-time highs yesterday. Yeah. Um, boy, I thought over the next three to five years we'd be getting back to those levels. So uh, interestingly, COVID's been a, a strange time for a company like ours. It's created an environment where we've just merged Leah Gold and Equinox Gold to create this platform in March, just before COVID really hit. And the integration has gone very well because I think people forget about their histories and issues. When a crisis hits you, you deal with what's in front of you. Yeah. I'm really proud of the team. A lot of us worked in West Africa during Ebola together um, at Endeavor. So when we came together, it was not easy, but in a sense, there was some familiarity with this type of virus. And, and it's been, um, I think, a good reaction from the team and we've, we've stabilized the business. And, and then in the background, you have gold price hitting all-time highs. You have currencies being really weak in Mexico and Brazil. You have diesel prices down. You kind of go, wow, I haven't seen this kind of margin expansion in our sector in quite a few years. Usually so, you see the gold price going up. You see costs somewhat following it. Yeah. It's all working. Pause there for a second. <laughs> no, it's, it, and it's all working in your favour, uh, yeah. and, and most mining companies' favour at the moment. So, yeah. um, I was interested in what you said. Obviously, some of the, when you got into the mining industry, you worked for New Gold, Endeavour, True Gold, and obviously Equinox now. And some of the people that you've you've been working with, and obviously someone like Ross Beatty now. With all the people that you've come across and some of the people that have, like you said, have mentored you, what, what are some of the th key things that would you say you've taken away from, from these people that are, some of them are obviously industry legends? Um, what, what have you taken away? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'm also an investor in the sector and I, I look at every company I get involved in or I'm on the board of as, as an investment number one. Like, would I back this company? Because I believe you, you have to have conviction when you do things. And, um, at the end of the day, you need a decent asset, you need a good asset, but you also need those people. And I've, I've found that when you find people like Ross, uh, Luke Sundin, Richard Wark, you know, uh, Neil Frank, even some of Ian Telford, et cetera, they tend to get behind companies and stick with it. Mm. And you see groups of people that will be there during the difficult times as well as the good times. And they tend to make money with shareholders rather than make money from shareholders. And that's a big difference. And, I've seen a lot of people in our space, and I think it happens in other sectors too, I'm just not familiar, where you create a small company, you have seed shares, you do it at one cent, five cent, you end up selling those shares for 10 times to institutional shareholders and you make money along the way, at, almost at their expense. And where I've seen a lot of groups that I've enjoyed working with, particularly Ross recently, where he invests every time there's a round of investment. 
he's investing alongside all shareholders and their long-term visionaries. Um, because I think our sector is up and down. And if you have a short-term horizon, you're going to get caught out. Um, you know, the tide comes and goes in our sector. Gold price comes and goes. Uh, but if you if you are, have a longer term view, you're going to see through those ebbs and flows and be successful, I believe. And I think that's been the key thing. And I think I found my investment style, my management style has been more long term. You build a great business and don't build it to be sold. Don't build to flip it or something after you do a feasibility study or build one mine because the market senses that. They sort of smell blood in the water in a sense. And I believe you build a great business and once in a while you do actually have a buyer come along and buy it. But if you build a great business, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you're yeah. going to survive the cycles. You're going to be cost competitive and you're going to attract long-term capital. And I think I've also learned that, you know, particularly recent with Ross, when you put your own skin in the game, you don't take big salaries. You're at the lower end of the scale. Your incentives are li- aligned with the long-term shareholders, such as sort of performance share units rather than just a pile of options, which are basically free money if they're successful. Um, I think also shareholders respect that. And you've seen the, I think it's the gold standard council or world sort of gold council, uh, which is large institutional shareholders like Paulson and Van Eck and, and um, some of the groups in New York particularly, but also London sort of said, look, we don't want any abuse of this sector. There's been some abuse in past cycles here. We want to see this long-term vision where, you know, pay is controlled, pay is for performance, people are invested and they have a long-term vision. And after we've done our recent deals, we've seen a couple of those groups reach out to say, you guys are doing things the right way. You're not doing big premium deals and passing value to others. You're invested alongside us. and We're going to back you doing that. And I think mm-hmm. that's been really exciting for me to see because that's always what I wanted to create. So in a sense, I've learned a little bit from all those people along the way. And then maybe the second key piece was, you know, really creating a culture and a team-oriented environment because I think there's two styles of management here. Um, and I think any sector, you can kind of run it as a leader, a dictator, you know, like you make the calls, you decide it's easier in a sense, tell people what to do, make them sort of follow you. Quite often people aren't as good as you because you want them to follow what you say. And it's quite dictatorial or you create a team environment where actually there's a bit of consultation, a bit of debate. You expect to be challenged. And honestly, when I sit around the table to see a management team, they're all better than me in each individual area they're involved in. I think it creates a stronger team environment. I think it also makes better decision-making and it brings the skills of others to the table. And I think it's a healthy environment, but it's harder work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually debating, negotiating, and, and, and actually figuring out what are the optimal solutions can take time and it can be frustrating at times. And on occasion, you have to make a call or decision to get on with something if you can't get to a conclusion. But I tell you, it's, it's more fun. I think you build a much more loyal environment and, and it sort of filters down to each of the mind sites as well. And I think I learned that too, is we're a corporate function here in Vancouver as a corporate team. We support the mind sites who generate the value of the money, really. And we want to get respect from the locals, the expats, the, the senior leaders in each country. And I expect myself and all the team to go into each of these countries and earn that respect of our own teams and also the local communities and stakeholders mm-hmm. and governments. You know, we're, we're guests in a sense. Yeah. Um, and I think I've learned that sort of respect over the years from, from some of the people I work with. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, okay, if you can give us an overview of Equinox Gold, um, obviously um, where, you, where you got to this stage and some of the projects and operations you're working on. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm sort of proud of is we started as a single asset development company in sort of 2017, really. And we're now a six producing mine country, company in the US, Mexico, and Brazil. 
So we've got about a third of our resources and reserves in California, Mexico, and Brazil, despite the different number of assets. You know, there's, there's a lot more assets in Brazil, but the actual, call it value or, or ounces in the ground is about equal between the three. So nicely diversified. Um, but the exciting part is we've got beyond those six lines, we've got four call it expansion or development projects, which is quite unusual in our space right now. Mm. Most companies are kind of more steady state, where we're really on a growth trajectory of about 20% per year. And I think it, I'm not sure if there's anyone else who's sort of half a million ounces or larger who has any kind of growth in that profile. It's fully not funded. Not no. It's fully funded right now. And part of that's because the gold price changed. Like our balance sheet now, we have half a billion in cash. And uh, basically, our net debt neutral or, or almost maybe even cash positive um, at the moment. So we can fund that whole expansion profile through probably operating cash flows in this current gold environment, $1,900 gold. And so we've got uh, a mine to rebuild in Brazil called Santa Luz. That'll add another 100, 120,000 ounces in early 2022. So we'll spend that 100 million of capital over the next year and a half. At about 200 to 250 million of capital to double the capacity of our Los Filos mine in Mexico, which is a 200,000 ounce producer going to 350 to 400 in about the same timeline to early 2022. So that 350 million of capital will come directly from our operating cash flows. And then the third mine in that is called Castle Mountain in California. It's a past producing mine. It'll be in production in the next few weeks here, actually. So it's really close. It's a smaller mine to start. The second phase will be a 200,000 ounce producer. That's about three or so years down the road. So really all those growth projects are in that portfolio that will, you know, take some of our capital and our time over the next 18, 24 months. But I think the resulting business will be, you know, there are thereabouts a million ounce producer. You know, mm. And that's a, a big achievement because there's only about 15 or 20 of those in the world. Um, yeah. So you're really coming onto that scale. And when you look at our valuation, we're probably three and a half, maybe four billion Canadian market cap. You look at Yamana and B2 uh, Gold and Evolution and all these sort of give or take 750 to a million ounce producers, most of them trading in the six to, I think the Australians are about $10 billion market caps now. Um, so we're really excited about the actual value creation potential along the way. And I think that's where we really add our values, financing, executing, and delivering that growth story to the market. Yeah. So that's what we're and I suppose it's because you guys have obviously got a few different minds. It's like you're spreading your spreading your bets in terms of having six operations running. So if anything does happen with a couple of the operations, you've still got other operations that are producing. Um, if there's any issues with some of these with some of these mines, as opposed to having one big operation um, where you're just reliant on that particular one mine. I think you touch on an extremely important point, and I think more sophisticated, larger institutional investors are expecting that now is diversity in assets and in jurisdictions. And yeah. you're exactly right. When our Mexican mine was put on suspension for all of quarter two, because the Mexican government had a COVID restriction, you know, we had five other mines that were producing gold and actually we generated cash in the quarter, despite the largest mine being on care and maintenance for, for a few months. Yeah. Um, and then also when governments change rules, taxes, anything, you have multiple jurisdictions. So, I think that gets rewarded in this market. You do see a number of single asset companies. You can have sometimes some speculative high returns on single asset companies or projects, but you also see if the government changes or the local community or you have a technical issue, boy, oh boy, you don't want to get stuck in that stock because it's hard to get out because there is no other cash flow. No. There is no other opportunity. Or your license doesn't get renewed, yep. which is happening uh, in a few, few cases around the world as well. So. 
Mining's not an easy business, and there, anyone who tells you there isn't political risk in any country in the world is giving you false information. Because I believe, even my, where I live, British Columbia, it's known as a mining and a resource-friendly uh, jurisdiction. Current government isn't overly favorable to new mining permits being approved. So yeah, <laughs> it's an interesting place to be. Yeah. Um, what challenges have, have the company faced over the sort of last few years? A any major challenges you would say um, that you've had to sort of, you've been challenged with and you had to overcome? Yeah, I, mean, I think early days, um, access to capital when you're small, people don't want to give you capital because you're small. Yeah. Um, and our sector was tended to be funded at the, the larger cap space. You know, the, the funds come into the larger caps first, they're more liquid. So access to capital. So we kind of solved that with sort of, it's, there were a few banks uh, supporting us like Scotiabank, BMO, and a few other global banks, SoftGen, et cetera. And um, also Ross B, Richard Wark had that access to capital, Lucas Lundin. So we kind of solved that earlier on. Now it's better. Um, I think growth is always challenging, you know, actually growing and trying not to drop any of the balls you're juggling at the time. Um, I think we've been pretty good at it. I, I would say we haven't been, you know, we've made a few mistakes along the way. We're a little late and a little over budget on Arizona, um, you know, getting into production last year. But you know what? In the bigger scheme of things, it was actually a great re rebuild of that line. Um, so executing when you're growing is tough because you've got so many balls in the air. And you need to find a team and people, I believe, that have been through it before. Because if you've only worked in a single asset company or a pre-production company, do you really understand what it's like to be in a multi-asset mining company? And finding people who want to step down in a sense to a smaller company, but will help build it to a bigger company and roll up the sleeves themselves. has been part of the key, uh, key focus for me is finding those great people that, that have done it before. So interestingly in our portfolio or in our group of management, we have a bunch of people who've been at new gold in the early days, a bunch of people who've been at endeavor in the early days and a few others that have been at other kind of growth oriented companies because they kind of know where I want to get yes. to. Or we and want they've to get seen to. the growth. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can drop the ball there. I think we've done a decent job on that. And, you know, the big challenge today, obviously, is adapting to the new world we're in with COVID and that. But, I mean, I looked at first quarter results, uh, second quarter results coming out in, in well, I think it's August 11th. And, you know, we've weathered the storm pretty well despite that. I mean, I will never be complacent because I think this virus is pretty unpredictable at the moment. But it's here to stay. I think we need to be ready to work with it for the next six to 24 months at least. And maybe mm -hmm. there's going to be a vaccine. Great. But if not, how do we operate in that environment? I think all industries are trying to deal with that. Yes, certainly. Um, what are the differences in mining in, say, the US, where you've got obviously a few mines, compared to, say, Brazil, Mexico? Is there sort of some certain considerations you need to take into account uh, when you're mining in those countries compared to the US and those, some of those things that you've experienced? Yeah, I mean, I look at sort of South America, Latin America. I've worked in West Africa and now U.S. and Canada. Yeah. And they're all got some similarities and differences in a sense. I mean, mining is a challenging business wherever you are. Um, I think finding good people, good service providers, good suppliers is a challenge. I think it's a little easier, let's say, in the western U.S. where there's a big mining base, a good hub in Nevada there. So getting access to people and supplies is actually reasonable. Um, where I'd say in some of the more remote jurisdictions where you're in a local community, and your obligation basically is to hire locals, train them up, provide income, jobs, and a good future. And I think, you know, that can be a challenge. Um, that can be in Brazil or it can be in West Africa. So I think that's quite different where you have a lot more skilled, call it workforce in the mining yeah. sector, in a place like Nevada, California, where we are. Um, you know, governments can be different. Um, I've found in some of the, call it, 
developing nations or earlier stage development nations, um, the rules and laws are less clear because they're, they're developing. They haven't mm. considered all situations in the past. And so that can be a challenge to navigate it and have certainty in those areas. But also sometimes things can happen quickly. You know, when I was in West Africa, you can get a mining permit in Burkina Faso much more quickly than you can in the Western U.S. quite often because they're actually very keen for that investment in jobs. Mm. And, and they're, probably their code and their mining code isn't as, as detailed and sophisticated. And, and actually, they'd like to see you invest. Where, you know, in North America now, you find sometimes certain areas prefer not to have a mine in the area or they're not as concerned about jobs. Although I think with the current diesel price and COVID pandemic, I think actually mm. jobs are becoming more and more critical everywhere. Yeah. And we're more welcome in a sense. Um, so you do have kind of a, call it very established environmental regulations, labor codes, um, processes, procedures through the law that you need to follow. So, you know, maybe more certainty in certain areas in North America, but the timelines can be protracted and take you longer to get there. Um, so it's, in a sense, there's, there's that risk in both. Yeah. Um, there's advantages to both. And I just think you need to have the right people experience in each of those regions to deal with it. Yeah. And how has your ESG programs been in Mexico and Brazil? And sort of what, what have you been doing and in terms of making a significant impact in those local communities where your where your minds are? Yeah, boy, that's a, a hugely topical question today, <laughs> and, and particularly for European investors and groups. And I've done a bunch of marketing in Europe in the last year. And some funds won't even invest in you as a company yeah. until you have an ESG rating now. Yeah. It's a requirement or they're making it an internal requirement. And so, in a sense, it's become a very uh, topical area that a company like ours, after the merger, it's become one of our key focuses. But I'll be honest with you, we're just coming up the curve in terms of our communication. Both companies were smaller before this merger in March and um, probably aren't up to the standards you expect of a, a million ounce producer. And that's partly a function of where we've come from so quickly. But the great thing is I've got some great people internally who understand where we need to get to and have been there before. And they're sort of saying, give us this year to get our first sustainability report out. Let's get our sustainability rating and then let's improve it. And let's get an interactive website where we're providing information to whoever needs it on a regular quarterly basis. So, you know, and then let's also look at our platforms in each country and see what we're doing well and what we're not. And, you know, I know certain sites and I haven't even had a chance to visit a couple of sites because the merger and COVID happened all at the same time. Yeah. But um, say in the Northeast of Brazil where it's subsistence farming and fishing, I think we consider ourselves an integral part of the community where um, our social license exists because I believe we're a good corporate citizen providing jobs. We provide training, even in skills that aren't always relevant to us. You know, we'll train people up in IT systems, in um, welding and other sort of vocations that we could use some of those skills, but actually they're going to be very useful to the community or other areas as well. Um, we also try and encourage people like the artisanal miners, when we buy their land, they'll get a, a lump sum of cash. We try and encourage them to reinvest it in something positive where two examples are one of them basically bought some buses and provides the local transportation for us now. So they have a longer term business. Another one is actually um, invested in a fuel station or a petrol station, and we actually buy some light vehicle fuel from them. Others have invested in farms and that. So um, becoming an integral part of the community, learning what they need, and, and actually then I think the key part on the ESG front, maybe from your perspective and an investor's perspective, will be how do we communicate that good stuff that we're doing. And, and I believe mining is actually generally pretty good in terms of the international space because we wouldn't be able to operate in these places if we weren't welcome and, and doing the right thing yeah. so 
I do believe on the ground we do things well. I don't believe we communicate it that well, though, to the, the greater world. In a sense. Yeah. And I think we're learning to do that better, and we're being forced to do that better. Yeah. And so we're coming up that continuum curve right now. Mm. I mean, we were just speaking before we are recording this about mining having that having that image, and it needs to improve it, I suppose, on a global global basis. It's, people, mining companies are doing good things in the local communities, and obviously if they weren't, then they won't be continuing much with, with the operation. But it's getting that, the broader message of what mining actually is to the, to the wider world and wider people in every jurisdiction, in every country. Um, it's just even people understanding what mining is about because most people don't understand mining, full stop. So yeah. there is a brand image for the actual industry as a whole globally. Um, and that needs to improve. Is there any, have, you, have you got any thoughts around that? Well, one really good example that I've come across, obviously, in the last couple of years is when we merged with Castle Mountain, the, the Newcastle company. And Castle Mountain was a mine there, and it's right on the Nevada-California border, but in and surrounded by the Mojave Preserve, which is a, a park, effectively. Yep. And they basically operated there from the 1990s to early 2000s, shut it down, put it on care maintenance, and reclaimed the site. So... When we drove down there, we first saw it, it was a non-operating mine. It had been reclaimed. Some of the pits had been backfilled. You had cacti and Joshua tree growing on the leech pad. That's where the cyanide was. I mean, people think cyanide, I mean, if you don't control it and manage it, obviously it can do some damage to people, yeah. to the environment. But that's a great example where it's been reclaimed. It now looks like a mountain. We used to play a game when you drive on that site and spot the leech pad. I don't know if anyone ever spotted it. It looked like natural topography. Yeah. That Joshua tree and cacti that... It also had mountain sheep running on it, and it was just beautiful. And it went back to its natural state. And we are going back into mine again, so we will make an impact there. But I tell you, when we do leave again, we will reclaim it. We have obligations mm. to, but we also have a moral uh, compass that, that hopefully does the right thing. But we are a temporary custodian that plan to leave it behind in a similar state to we found it. Um, where you look at a lot of uh, home developments out in the desert or, or in British Columbia where there's gold growth forests and trees and that, those things come, they set up, they clear land, they create environmental impact, they never leave. We actually leave and reclaim it. We can actually do some positive and, and yeah, the flora and the fauna can come back. So I'm pr quite proud of that. And I think a lot of people don't understand that that is possible. Most people see all the news about a tailings dam failure, which is a real shame that should never happen. Mm. But they are pretty rare. Generally, there's very good stewardship, and actually, some of these failures are driving our industry towards other safer ways to do things. Um, but they're the rare incidences that you see happen that obviously get the publicity. It's not all the good things that we do yeah, yeah. generally, and I, I'm pretty proud of what we do and, and the impact we have on locals. One other great example is in Burkina Faso when I was there. I just remember one guy in particular, he was head of finance for us, young guy, had a family. I remember he said he could buy a house in, in the capital city. He bought a on a second-hand Mercedes car, he put his kids in a private school that where they were learning English and French, and, and he also was able to buy a little hotel and employ seven people. And he just said, look, mining has changed my life. Mm. And he was really proud of what he had done, and, and I still have a, a friendship with him, despite the fact that I've been there in the last four years. But um, those are the kind of things that I have the memories of, all those positive yeah. environment impacts. And, um, I think and it really can can do a better job of communicating that. Yeah, and you've just changed someone's life completely there. Um, even then having a business as well, putting their kids to private school, they wouldn't, they probably wouldn't even have thought of that uh, without mining. So, and it probably would have been possible in some of these countries where 
I suppose mining is a well-paid industry in their local countries. Um, so yeah, there is there is certainly a lot of good things, but it's we don't promote it in a in a global sense. We're more defensive as an industry, I think. We you know, yeah. put on our back foot is always having to defend ourselves for what we do, where I think sometimes mm. we should also be proud of what we do. And, and as someone like Ross, I, I think it's a great example. I, I don't know exactly what he's worth, and I'd speculate it's a billion dollars plus. <laughs> and I know he had a lot of capital to provide to us. So uh, he said, look, uh, I think it's 99.2% of charity money globally go to people, looking after people. We already have $7 billion on this planet. There's probably too many, and we can barely support it. So all of his charity money and pretty much his, most of his net worth will go to the environment and animals at the end, um, which is pretty interesting. He's also mm. contributed to and a good support of the Suzuki Foundation and some of these, these West Coast um, fisheries uh, foundations, the Big Cat um, uh, charities, etc. And, and those are the things that we as people rely on is the environment and animals. Mm. And so he looks after protecting it and his wealth is coming from an extractive industry, but hopefully a very responsible extractive industry, we think. And it's actually going to a good cause. So um, those are the kind of things I think we should be more proud of. And he's very much promotion promoter of moving away from hydrocarbon energy towards renewable. And he created an also renewable energy company, geothermal, run a river, wind power, solar, et cetera. And, and we have some call it pressure from our chairman to be looking at those alternatives for our industry. And, you know, I think it could be a very interesting alternative now is uh, those technologies become cheaper and cheaper. And once they can compete, unfortunately, I guess with diesel price being low at the moment, it's a little less competitive, yes. but yeah. you know, eventually diesel price will probably come back and, and mm. you know, if we can move to some of those renewable energy sources. It's good from a social impact, but it's also potentially economically good in the long term. So, mm. Yeah. Um, as obviously the recording of this, gold is reaching sort of all time, all time highs, or it did yesterday. Um, I think it, when I looked this morning, it has come off a little bit. Um, but what is your outlook or prediction for gold over the short and medium term? Um, and I don't expect you necessarily to put any figures on that, but if you're, if you're brave enough, you can do. But what, how do you see the gold, gold price playing out over the short and medium term? So just step back two or three years, we started and it was about $1,200 gold. I thought we'd get to thirteen to $1,500. We have a really good business over the next number of years. We did. Uh, we were budging at 1400 in December. Next thing you know, we're at all-time highs. I tell you, I was thinking next three to five years, you'd be maybe touching on those all-time highs because the fundamentals behind it are strong. You know, governments have printed a lot of money. They've got a lot of negative yielding debt. You know, spread around the world. Who wants to actually buy debt where you're actually paying someone to basically lend them money? Yeah, it's a crazy concept, and I think a lot of people don't understand the value of money and, and currencies and all that. And as we all know, over thousands of years, gold holds its value. Okay, it doesn't pay you a dividend, but right now, when actually there's a negative dividend, effectively on a lot of instruments in the world, um, gold looks pretty darn attractive. And I really did think over the next two to four or five years, you'd get up towards these levels. You know, maybe go a bit higher. Um, I'm not a, a raving gold bull in a sense, but I actually have probably reset my expectations going, you know what, I think it's going to go a bit higher here because I think this COVID environment has just unleashed a wave of money and, and, you know, call it irresponsible spending with no plan for repayment or sorting it out afterwards. Not saying that maybe we shouldn't have put some of that money out there to stabilize industries, jobs, people, etc., but I'm not sure there's a plan with it how to solve that afterwards. So I think governments are going to be scrambling once this thing settles in the next year or two. 
And really the only solution for governments is not to default on debt, et cetera, is to debase a currency and repay it with weaker money. Yeah. Uh, weaker so. value currency. And so I think ultimately that leads to a bit of inflation in the longer term as well. I think we could be in for deflation here for a while, but mm-hmm. um, long term, I think you'll see some inflation. I think gold is usually runs a bit ahead of all these kind of fundamentals. And I think we're seeing that now. I'm seeing a lot of generalists and central bankers and others sort of saying, oh boy, gold's looking pretty interesting, even at these levels now. Um, so I think we're looking for you know, a two to $3,000 gold sort of price over the next few years here. I don't see why not, why it can't be in that range. I remember when gold hit 1,000 um, back in whatever year that was, and I remember selling the gold because I was a treasurer at New World at the time. I thought, okay, sell today. It may never hit 1,000 again. I think it never will, but it's actually yeah. for the different reason. I thought it might go lower, but now I think it's never going to go back to 1,000. Yeah. You never know, but I'm not sure it's going to go that low again. Yeah, I mean, I've been, it's funny enough, during the lockdown, I've been sort of studying a lot of the uh, economics and understanding gold. And during, like, during the 1970s, they, the price of gold at, I think, the beginning of the decade was like 30, $35. Um, and then it reached to, I think it reached up to about 200. Then it pulled back, went to 100, and then it skyrocket, skyrocketed to 850 by, uh, towards the end of the decade. Uh, so there's, uh, I think, a 24-fold increase in the, in, the, uh, in the value of, obviously, gold, an ounce of gold. People are saying that potentially could happen, whether it's happened this decade or it's partly happened now. Um, have you got any thoughts around that, where, the, the, especially with this money printing, there could be, um, there could be some sort of currency crashes, et cetera, uh, around the world? And there's obviously there is certain countries at the moment that are in, in difficulty where inflation has gone sky high. Um, do you see a sort of scenario that probably happened in the 1970s playing out, playing out over the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it'll be as dramatic. Um, I also don't know why it won't be. <laughs> That's also hard. But mm. I do think um, we're in for that kind of run to a certain degree because gold or resource industries tend to overshoot on the upside and the downside, right? Once every taxi driver, every mom and pop is <laughs> buying gold and it's in the headlines of all newspapers. I've seen it come up a bit more recently. You know, it'll it'll go to some level that we never could have fathomed, whatever that number might be, and, and it tends to overrun, and then it'll go back down below probably where we thought, and it, it's cyclical. It, it, yeah. It's definitely of that nature. But I also look at those paper currencies, and, and again, as I've done a bunch of research and studying of it, I find it fascinating, the value of money, et cetera, of currencies. And you look over thousands of years, no paper currency any government's ever backed has ever survived. That's always gone to zero. I think the US dollar is maybe the longest or one of the longest, and it's yeah. had a great run. And I think, I can't remember who was saying that if you look back to the early 1900s and versus today, it's lost 90-something percent of its yeah. value. Yeah, 90, 96%, I think it is. Yeah, it's um, purchasing I, power. Yeah, and I think that figure is not not necessarily, I think that's favorable figure. I think it's probably even worse than that. Um, but yeah, no, no, every currency, I think generally lasts 30, 40 years. Um, and I think the, the, the American dollar is in the, the 40 plus years. Um, so yeah, it, it could be its time fairly soon. Um, which yeah, is- but I also kind of go, you can also look and go, what's the alternative? And I think at the mm. moment, you know, I think you know, I also looked at empires. I always find that fascinating history of empires. Obviously, you being in Britain, it's a fascinating one as well. But 
you see empires sort of crest and peak and they have all these powers and then they lose them to a certain degree and the confidence wanes a bit. And I think potentially the U.S. will go through that at some point, whether we're on the peak or coming down the curve of it now, I don't know. Um, but the currency is really only backed by the confidence investors have in it. So yeah. could the Chinese renminbi yuan eventually take it over? Could the Russian ruble, could have some world currency? I don't know. Um, I don't think anyone has enough confidence in any of those these days yeah. to allow it. But so you kind of the default is the dollar or something mm. like hard assets like gold or property or something else. So, yeah. I mean, personally, from an investing perspective, I like having some exposure to physical gold, to gold stocks, which are obviously have more torque to the gold or silver price. Um, I think I've heard stories of, I think it was Homestake when gold price was taking off probably in that period you were alluding to earlier. I think the share price went up. 30 times or something. You know, some incredible number for yeah. Homestake used to be one of the bigger gold mining companies in the world. And, you know, I think it's hard to imagine like a Barrick or a Franco Nevada or something going up. Going that level, much. But maybe yeah. it can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they do say the mining companies will have a generally a, a more of an increase than the actual physical gold. But that could be more of the maybe junior and smaller, smaller miners because you couldn't see the, the larger miners sort of increasing by 10, 20, 30, well, they could do, but um, yep. it, it's, it's hard to hard to believe that. But we just never know. We just never know. Yep. Um, I've got a couple more questions. Yep. Why should, um, and obviously we have a variety of different listeners uh, listen to this podcast, why should someone invest in Equinox Gold um, and what are they likely to see in return? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I hope that, that people will, number one, look at the people, management, board, etc., behind it, even shareholders, and kind of go, these are a group of people that are invested long-term, who have had a track record of good success in the past, and, you know, will stick by this company as an investment and as a, a governance, from a governance perspective, and you can kind of trust your money with this kind of group, because I think that's an important thing to build, and it doesn't get, it gets earned over a long time, and it can get lost very quickly, and I know someone like Ross is spent 30, 40 years earning it. I've spent probably 25, 25, and you want to you wanna keep that. That's a key critical thing. And so I think um, that's something that's important. I think the, the alignment of management and the board being the largest shareholders, the chairman, um, all of management own a meaningful stake from a personal perspective in this company. I think 50% of my net worth is in this stock, not more now. And, um, you know, our incentives are aligned. So that's another reason. And then for me, critically, because I'm an investor, number one, even before being in management, is um, you look at the valuation of this company versus its peers, and you know we will be that three-quarters of a million to a million-ounce producer in the next sort of 18 months, and our peers tend to be valued at you know anywhere from sort of six to $10 billion. We're currently at kind of half that. And mm. for me, that's something that I have to show and then earn and execute upon the plan to earn that valuation right and um, re-rating to that space and you know we're on the early stages of that journey so from my perspective you know that re-rating is going to come without even the gold price moving or even potentially falling and i think we'll do if we do any more deals hopefully some smart accretive deals along the way so i think you'll be with a team that's well aligned with you and also hopefully we'll we'll surface the value that seems to be pretty clear it's there yeah and what's the short and medium outlook for equinox gold yeah, the short term is to continue just executing, delivering on our current operating lines. But I've called the midterm is the exciting part. In the next sort of 18, 20, 24 months is delivering on three of these four 
or even really the four expansionary projects from our current funding platform. So we will be adding sort of call it 300, maybe 400,000 ounces of production from our eternally executed upon growth story um, assets, which are really um, the Santa Luz rebuilt in Brazil, the doubling of capacity in Mexico from adding a carbon and leach plant, and then also um, putting Castle Mountain production in California. So those three core assets will add that production. Yeah. Okay. Um, and lastly, if, um, if you could recommend a guest that I should interview on this show, um, who could you recommend? Um, and who do you think listeners would, would like to, would like to hear from someone who might have a good story to tell, who might, um, or an, an interested, it may, they could be a CEO of a mining company, or they could just be, um, like some of your old, old, uh, mentors. Who, who would you say you, you could recommend if I was to get someone on the show? Well, I'll give you a few different names there. Cause I thought you would ask that question maybe ever, interestingly. <laughs> um, but uh, very interesting. When I look at some people, I mean, I think Ross Beatty and Richard Wark are very interesting because they're entrepreneurs who've been extremely yeah. successful. They put a lot of their own money in. They've both been very successful recently as well. Ross does a lot of them, so you may have met him before or not. I think people have heard him before. Yeah. Richard Wark doesn't do a lot of publicity, so he's harder to get. So from your perspective, if he would talk to you, I think he'd be a very interesting guy to talk to. to extreme success, particularly in copper assets, and he is actually now behind Solaris Copper, which is a spin-out from us. And hopefully we'll make a billion, $2 billion company out of it currently. It's a $100 million market cap company. Hmm. Um, so he'd be really interesting in a coup for you to get, I think. <laughs> uh, two other really great people and interesting characters here in Vancouver, kind of entrepreneurs, are Marco Day, who's behind the Oxygen Group and who's behind Truegold. Um, he's had some great success, as well as Nolan Watson, who founded Sandstorm. The royalty company and he's an extremely intelligent young guy who I have a ton of respect for um, as long along with Mark and then um, uh, one other one that's a little bit more I call it probably under the radar for you that I have a lot of respect for is Marcel de Groot here in Vancouver and he's behind Pathway Capital with Dave DeWitt and they've been behind a lot of stories over the years of creating public companies germinating them putting together the financing people etc and they tend to do it in a really, I'd call it, ethical way. Um, they don't take any fees. They, they help get a public company up and running. They pay for their own office costs, and then they help these companies get going rather than take fees and you know all these sort of things out of the business. They tend to help support them on the early stage. And I think he's done a great job. and got some great stories over the years. He's been through a lot of value creation over multiple cycles, and he's still a young guy. Uh, so he'd be an interesting one as well. Yeah, okay. Okay, really appreciate your time, Christian, and uh, really appreciate you uh, giving the story of Equinox Gold and um, obviously discussing um, gold as well, obviously, uh, especially in a time like we are facing now where gold is at an all-time high. So really appreciate your time. If any of our audience wants to um, get in contact with you, if they've got any questions to ask you, how can they go about doing that? You know, honestly, I, I like to think of myself as extremely um, accessible. So we've got our phone numbers and our emails basically on the website. It's uh, very easy to get a hold of me or Berlin Bailey, who's our head of investor relations. But I take my phone calls. I answer them directly. So just call up the general line and you'll find my number on there. 
Um, it's yeah. on our website, equinoxgold.com. Yeah. And are, are you on any social media platforms at all where people can you know reach what? out to you? I'm very, well, I mean, we do use the, the usual Facebook, Twitters, et cetera, for the company, but I don't do a lot of that myself personally. I, I keep a fairly low profile and I believe, uh, you know, Ross is the profile of our company. I like mm-hmm. to run it, keep my head down, do a good job, I hope. Yeah, no worries. Well, if you've got any uh, obviously questions, um, obviously you can contact Christian via what uh, he just said. Um, I'll put the uh, information in the show notes below. You can also email myself and I can pass any message on to Christian and that's rob at mining-international.org. Really appreciate your time, Christian. Thanks for um, sharing your knowledge and expertise um, and good luck for the uh, future. Um, Thanks, Rob. And to the audience, until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.